Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I'm going to ask, Lord, that in these moments that we have together, would you allow for your Holy Spirit, we ask your Holy Spirit to come and to continue to move in our hearts and our midst and glorify your Son, Jesus, and help us to know what it means to wrap our lives around you. We invite you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I titled this series Unity and Peace, and I uh, titled this message specifically An All-Out Effort for Unity. And I was trying to look up how to spell that, and and then I see it's hyphenated, and I was, you know, Google does all kinds of things. And all of a sudden I come up, this thing comes up and talks about American idioms and and tells me that an all-out effort, that very phrase is an American idiom that's been used for a number of years, and it just means a great and thorough effort at giving, uh, at at solving a given problem. An all-out effort. Great and throw effort at solving a given problem. And as I looked at that and saw it in Google, there were all kinds of things that that was used for, whether it was for for illnesses and and for epidemics and whether it was for political situations and all kinds of things. Those words came up used again and again. Didn't see any with regard to the church, but thought that was kind of interesting as I saw that. So I thought I'd take a few minutes to describe some all-out effort occasions. And maybe you could kind of say the little phrase that goes with it. For instance... The final few minutes of a basketball game and the team that is losing does this in order to get the ball back. It's an all-out effort and it's called what? Full court press. Good. Way to be, ladies. Um, Thank you. The football game is near the end and the team is losing by a touchdown and the offense goes to a what? There's a number of answers here, but two-minute drill. No huddle offense, right? Hurry up offense, something like that. It's the night before a big exam and you haven't studied much all semester, so you decide to pull a what? Oh, we've got a lot of people who've done that. Your wife has been away for a week and she should be home within the hour, so you recruit or conscript the kids to help you do what? A quick clean, clean the dishes. I heard all kinds of responses for service. Okay, it's the night before Christmas, and you haven't gotten your wife a Christmas present, guys. What do you do? Nothing. You're dead. I'm just too bad. There's certain times all out efforts don't work for anything. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, right in the very middle of this letter to these people who are meeting in these home churches, these homes all around the city of Ephesus and the outlying area, he writes this letter which he wants distributed. So when they would meet, they would read this letter in all these different homes within the church. We always think maybe it came to a church like this in Ephesus. They didn't have these kind of buildings. They met in homes. And so it was really important that unity was kept. So he gives us theological foundation, Ephesians 1 through 3. He gets to chapter 4 and he says, here's what I want you to do. Verse 3, kind of what I call the hinge verse. He says, make an all-out effort or make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Last week I spoke on the importance of unity. I wanted to set up how important it is that unity is in the eyes of God. If you look at Genesis 11, if you want to listen to that um, as well, um, you can, last week's message. It's, it's, it, Genesis 11, God is looking down at these people who with one language, one voice, um, 
one plan and resolve with this common understanding, come together to, to build this tower, to do something that really is against and apart from God. And, and God looks down and he, he, it says in, in Genesis that he looks down, he comes and he sees these people and he says that these people with one voice, one common understanding, with, with this one resolve can do this. He says, quote, nothing is impossible for them to do. I used to read that. I go, I don't get it. Basically, he's saying this. God provides. This is a very natural way. This thing called unity. When people come together with common understandings, with, with a common sense of, of language, with a common sense of a plan and resolve, and when they put their hearts and their minds and their spirits together, God says, whether it's for good or for bad, incredibly miraculous kinds of power flows through those kind of people. That's how important unity is. I think Paul kind of understood this. For in Acts chapter 19, when he came to the city of Ephesus, if you want to read Acts chapter 19 sometime, it's about the story of when Paul first came to Ephesus. He comes to Ephesus, and, and these incredibly miraculous things happen as he gathers people from that synagogue, and that church was there, and people were together, united, although they were meeting in different homes and in separate kind of places. As they would come together through that city, God did incredible things, so much so... That in chapter 19, verse 11, Paul writes, God did extraordinary miracles. Which begs the question, what's an ordinary miracle? If there's unity, he can do extraordinary miracles. Well, here's what extraordinary miracles are. Luke writes in this book of Acts, handkerchiefs and aprons that touched Paul were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. That messes with your worldview, doesn't it? You see, what was happening was that in this place, God's presence was so rich and so full. The unity of the people around this desire for God to be glorified, around people's relationships so being right with one another, that his substance, his presence was so thick and rich that actually within the handkerchief or clothing of this sense of God was so present that when people touched it, it says that they were healed. That messes with your metaphysical reality, doesn't it? And Paul knew this incredible power of unity. And in verse 3 of chapter 4, he invites you and me into this. Verse 3, he says, Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The New International Version says, Make every effort. The New King James Version says, Endeavor to keep. The New American Standard Version says, Be diligent to preserve the unity. The Amplified says, be eager and strive earnestly to guard and keep the harmony and oneness of God's Spirit. The Greek word simply means to attempt, try, make an effort, and to do so with all earnestness and with all diligence. The Meyer paraphrase, mine, is make an all-out effort to protect and preserve the unity. Give it everything you have got. And so I began to ask questions like this. This is kind of how my mind works. I'm going, if unity is that important, and we're supposed to make an all-out effort, what does this mean for you and for me in our daily lives? So I started asking questions like, what would it mean at work for you if you earnestly tried to do everything you could to keep a sense of peace and recon- you know, keep relationships as best they can at peace so there's unity? What would it mean for you if you're at school or among your friends to do all that you could do to stay in a right relationship with the people around you. 
What would it mean in your marriage if you gave diligent effort, not just to try and make money and trying to live together and provide for your kids and family or for your grandchildren or whatever it is, but if you in your marriage actually said, I will do all that I can, and your spouse said, I will do all that I can, that we will live together in such a way that there won't be obstructions. And if there are things that for over the years have gotten in the way, we will work at whatever it means, whether it means bringing in a counselor, whether it means meeting with someone and other people, we will do all that we can so that we will enjoy the kind of intimacy that God wants so that our life begins to show the very power of God to change you and others around you. What would that be like? And then I I couldn't help but ask this question. What would it mean today? Right now? For us. This people called Wyzetta Free. To make an all-out effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. What did that mean? If we as people came together and, and, and knowing we have differences and allowing for that and working together, brought all these multi-generations together with multi-different backgrounds, with multi-different ways of understanding life, and, and somehow we worked together in such a way that we learned how to, to keep in right relationship, which actually means that you go in and out of relationship. That's part of life, reality. But you learned as a body, as a group, to give effort all the time as best we could to stay in those kind of resolved places. Can you imagine the power of God that would flow through this place? Through your life at work, with your school, among friends, at your social club, Because you become kind of a person who's learning what it means to live in that sense of all producing of peace and unity so that through you God is doing these kind of things that in some ways can actually even release the healing power of God. Well, the background for this passage of Scripture is the first three chapters can be, in my estimation, summed up this way. God in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, is setting back in place all that has been broken apart due to our sin and selfishness. That's what those first three chapters are about. Like a surgeon skillfully setting a compound fracture, Paul shows how God is setting back in place broken relationships, first between himself and individuals, and then secondly between people, and then beyond that between all creation. Like this very skillful surgeon who has this complex break and fracture. God begins in the beginning of of time and he starts working through chapter 1. He talks about this and then he talks in chapter 2 of how he's doing it between God and people and then between people and people. Then in chapter 3 he gets down to here's what God is doing mysteriously in you right now and so that he comes to chapter 4 and he makes this very simple point in verse 1. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul was in prison not by Rome but by the will of God. He had chosen at one point when God called him to respond to God's call. And as a result of that response, he chose to be a peacemaker, a reconciler, a person who would give an all-out effort to live right with God and live with others. And he says, I urge you. The idea is I plead with you. Because he understood this concept of unity. To live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
basically someone who comes to faith in Christ becomes a follower of Jesus. This what we call regenerating work where he takes your heart and he takes the sin and, and through your process of repentance and forgiveness. What he basically does is Jesus at one point calls to you. You hear his Holy Spirit and you respond to it and say, yes, I want to follow you. That's simply if you're here today and you're saying, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means simply this. You recognize that your selfishness has caused a fracture between God. Your selfishness has caused broken relationships with others. You realize that you need God because you can't do it yourself. And he calls you and he says, guess what, Kevin? I would like to enter your life and I'd like to make it possible you could have a relationship with the Father and I'd love to make it possible for you to have a relationship that is good and right with your wife and with your children and with your friends and with your church family and with that. It goes further and further. And you may be in that place where you have called and, and you have heard God at one point, maybe years ago or maybe just even a few days ago. And he comes and he says to you, says Paul, I plead with you. If you've heard this voice of God call to your heart, I just plead with you. Would you be one of those kind of persons who is an all-out effort giver towards being a part of this process that God, like a surgeon, has been dealing with and be one of these kind of repairers of relationships? I just, I want to ask how many, I almost want to give an altar call and say, sign up right now. But anyway, we'll keep going. He says in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Here's how you do it. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as we were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then verse 7, I love it. Because he, he, he wants to make sure that we don't recognize that unity is not, some, it's not uniformity. It's not like we all act the same, we're all the same. He, he is, God is so incredible. He's, he's made up this trinity, three persons who are distinct and yet joined together in a unity of spirit and heart. He basically says in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. The idea is this, God in his grace has made you unique. He has made you different from one another. We are this great mosaic, this pulling together of all different unique kind of personalities and backgrounds and ways of looking at life. And he wants us to come together and he wants us to honor one another with that. So that we would grow up and become like Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll interact in one another's lives in that way. And when this happens, there will be times where our differences get in the way. There will be times when there is difficulty. And it will require for you, if you have heard and you have heard the voice and you are responding to that voice, to walk worthy, which means that you will be an all-out giver effort towards unity. And so, he says, make an all-out effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I'm going to share with you just two points. The first that I'm going to take is really the last part of that sentence. In verse 3, maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What you need to understand under this first thing, when he says if you want to be one of these people who maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, you need to understand this, that there is a unity of the Spirit in this place. Those who are followers of Jesus. It is not of your human spirit. The word is of God's spirit, capital S. It is a unity that is beyond any one of us. It's not something that you and I create. It's not something man-made. Praise God. And it's not something that lies on the surface, but it is the foundation by which our church has there a cornerstone lying in a person by the name of Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. 
And I just go, isn't that great to know? He says, I'm asking you not to create it, not to make it, not to fashion it. You know, I'll talk a little bit later about this, but there are vision statements and mission statements and value statements and things that call churches together, which we should have, and, and we're in the process of working and writing that down. We're meeting as elders and as staff, and, and then in January we meet with ministry leaders so that we can craft it, it can be on paper, and that's a really good thing. But beyond and below all that is not something that we put out here, but it's something that stands below all that, and that is Jesus Christ. And the love that flows from his heart. And so he says there's a unity that exists that has been created by God. God made it. He authored it. It is a unity by and of the spirit through the bond of peace. And this idea of, of the spirit is a really incredible thing because he's basically saying there is this bond of peace, which I'll talk about in a moment. But there is this unity that comes by the spirit. It's what the spirit does. And one of the things that I long for us to do as a church is to recognize that our unity doesn't come by a vision, mission, value statement. It doesn't come by a whole lot of other things. It comes by one simple thing. And that is we are people who humble ourselves in our hearts before God. And we listen to the spirit of God and the spirit of God directs us because he needs to direct us uniquely, individually and at times corporately. And one of my deep desires before I ever took this church, when I went through a, a kind of a, a four-year hiatus, when I was really struggling trying to understand what God wants to do with the church, one of the things that was very clear to me that I just will never, ever let go of is that God wants you and me to grow up to become like Jesus Christ. He wants us to develop the character of Christ so that the fruit of the Spirit begins to flow through our lives, that we use the gifts of the Spirit, but that we listen to the Spirit and that you don't become dependent on some preacher or some teacher in your adult class or on some Christian radio station. But you have the ability through the word of God to begin to know him. And you have the ability in your relationship through the Holy Spirit, unity of the spirit, to be guided and led by the spirit. Jesus was not fooling. He wasn't kidding when he said to his disciples, wait, I'm giving you the spirit of truth who will lead you into what? All truth. We are the most over-resourced people in any generation when it comes to having the Word of God. You would think we should have it down so well that we should all be mature and people of the character because we have this Word of God. But Paul is so incredibly wise. He doesn't say unity around the Bible. He says unity around the Spirit of God, which implies and takes in the Word of God, which takes in good teaching, which takes in all these things. But one of the things, when I think about it back in the time when... when when God was working, the Father with the disciples, and he took Jesus away, if there was a time he was ever to be afraid, it should have been those first disciples, right? They, they didn't have a lot of the word in those different places. And so I look at this and I go, he says, unity of the Spirit. Maintain it, because God creates it. And he makes this point that it's, it's given as a gift as we listen to the Holy Spirit and grow in that. But know what holds it all together. Through the bond of peace. That word, if you look in your Bible, bond of peace is a very important word. It really could be substituted through Jesus Christ or through the cross of Christ. Because in chapter 2, he spent the whole time in chapter 2 talking about Jesus being this super glue bond that has made us right with God and then cemented the relationship with God the Father because of the grace of God, and this superglue bond that puts us together because of what the Spirit of God has done through the cross of Christ. So I'm just going to read it to you in the message without making a whole lot of comments. And the message, you just you don't get worried. This is not some weird translation. It's a paraphrase, just like the Living Bible was years ago. 
And I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, first of all, this great surgeon God has given us Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit is setting things right. And one of the ways he's done this is he set us right with God. Listen to this in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. And I usually substitute when I see the world in John and other places. It's helpful for me to write this dysfunctional system we call the world. This dysfunctional family that lives in the world. You, you, you let this dysfunctional family we call the world out here, who doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then ex- exhaled, exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing. When we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and incredible and with an incredible love, he embraced us. Dirty, sinful, selfish people. And he took our sin dead lives and made us alive in Christ. And he did this all on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up, set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah. Now, catch this. This is what is so cool about this unity that comes by the Spirit. The unity comes around Jesus Christ, and it comes from a greater place. It comes from the cross of Christ where we all stand. Because he goes on and he says, now God has us where he wants us with all the time in the world and and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. He asks us to become along surgeons with him and do the good work he has gotten ready for us to do work he we had better he says be about doing and i just think that i love that i go here is this unity that's created by jesus christ at the cross and the cross puts us in a place where none of us can go around none of us if you ever think that you can go where you work or where you go to school or where you're involved with other people and you look at them with your nose kind of down them because somehow you have a relationship with god and you hear from god you are not in right relationship with god Because you didn't do any of it. That's Paul's point. That bond which keeps you in peace, praise God, is his grace and not according to your effort. Because if it was, we're all in big trouble. So then he goes on. He says, not only does he set us right with God, the Father, but he sets us right with one another. Listen to what he says. He's talking to these Ephesian people who are living in, in, in meeting in these different homes. And he wants to say to them, you know, you guys, those of you who were Gentiles, because one of the greatest breaks in all of history was between Gentiles and Jews. They, they couldn't get along for anything. And so he says this, but don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's way had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works. Hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. Hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now, because of Christ, here it is, dying that death, shedding that blood. You who were once out of it altogether, guess what? You're in on everything. 
The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall that we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed, I like this phrase, the law code that had had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace And that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace, the bond of peace, to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and made us, and so made us equals. And through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. He's basically saying the peace was created by Christ in relationship to your salvation and the grace he gave you. The peace was related by Christ at the foot of the cross because guess what? I say this often and and I like saying it, I guess. You look around at everybody and you think they may have their act together better than you. They don't. Every one of us stands right at the foot of the cross on level ground. We all need God. We all need forgiveness. We've all made mistakes. We've all treated other people in ways that we think are despicable. We all have been in that place where we've been provoked or we have provoked. And the cross puts us on level ground and because of that creates us as equal before the eyes of God and with one another. So how can any of us, if we're truly humble and understand the meekness of God towards us and his incredible patience bearing with us in love, reaching down and and holding on to us and embracing us even in our sin, how can we not do that for another person? That's basically his point. Maintain the unity of the Spirit which is the spirit which we listen to and guides us as a body and as individuals through the bond of peace, what Jesus did on the cross, which puts us in right relationship to God by the grace of God, nothing that we've done, and puts us in right relationship with one another because we all stand on equal ground and we recognize the fact that I need help and so do you. And so then Paul goes on and he says, let me share with you what you need to do. I'm going to just read this last part of scripture here in chapter 2 before I do that. He says, now that you have access to the Father, he says, that's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. I like that. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here, in what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation, and now he's using you, fitting you brick by brick, stone by stone, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into the temple, which God is quite at home with. The idea being that God is causing this this group of people with all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of uniqueness, and he's bringing this group together, which he calls the church. And in this church, and in this relationship of people around God and around one another through God, He is saying he dwells and shows up. And that's why Paul is making all that effort for unity. Because the church exists to display the glory of God, how he can bring diverse people together around a common reality, around Jesus Christ's cross and his Holy Spirit. So that no matter who we are, what we look like, where we have come from, where we work, whether rich or poor, educated or uneducated, Jew or Greek, black or white, Democrat or Republican, powerless, powerful or helpless, We're all created in the image of God, and we all stand at the cross in need of God's grace, and we all need the Holy Spirit to bond us to him and to one another.
Isn't that great? That's what we're about. And so he makes this simple point. If you maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, then here's how I want you to do it. I want you to make an all-out effort. When you come to these situations, put on that two-minute drill. You know what I mean? Do the no-huddle off. I mean, do what you need to do. And here's how you do it. Be completely humble. Listen to the Spirit of God. Know that the bond of peace is Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. Know that at the cross we all stand humble, just as I said. Know that at the cross, at the cross of Christ, this is not about trying to win your way, trying to, to and somehow um, get your preference. It's all about listening to Jesus Christ and coming together, recognizing that one of our deepest charges is to stand around the sense of love that is displayed, displayed through the cross of Christ. And how do we do that? That's what we're going to do together. That's what we're learning to do. And it takes effort. It takes an all-out effort. He says not only you know, complete humility, but he wants you to know that it's not partial or moderate. You don't do it to some degree or in some measure, but complete humility recognizes this, that you can't do it alone, but you totally need God the Father. You need to get on your knees before him. You need to listen to the Spirit, and you need to recognize the fact that even if you've been hurt or in some way offended or whatever, you have done the same, and God has been patient and humble with you. And then he goes, not only be completely humble, he says, be completely meek. He doesn't let up. Someone keeps telling me week by week, one of the uh, friends here at church keeps going, when are you going to give me an escape clause? Didn't, it, it wasn't the Old Testament, the ten suggestions. You know, I want to tell you something. God doesn't give escape clause. He basically says, be completely meek. Not just a little bit. The word meek is really interesting. It means the word gentle. I live on a hobby farm and I have some horses and I'm not really great with horses, but I've learned a few things about them. Horses, when they are fully trained, are incredibly meek or gentle animals. But you also know that in that animal is this incredible power and strength. Do you know the old cowboys, some of the ways they used to actually um, get a horse to obey them, they would break their spirit. And breaking their spirit would cause them to be animals that would have incredible amounts of fear, which isn't really good to have in an animal a lot of fear. But in that way, they would so kind of manhandle them that those animals would be afraid, and so then they would kind of come under their rule. Well, the word that Jesus uses is not break the spirit. The word he uses is meekness. It's the idea that God comes along and gentles us. And the idea of of horse training today is they often will gentle a horse. The idea is that they want the spirit of the horse to be fully present, so the power of of that animal is there, and yet they want to bring it under both training and restraint. So that when a rider gets on this horse and the master's on this horse, that, that horse, by the gentlest, you know, pull of the reins or, or the, just tapping the side of the horse by the master, the, the horse will know to turn, or by the shift of the weight. This huge, strong animal whose spirit hasn't been broken, who's fully alive, uniquely gifted to do what it's to do, comes under the restraint and is retrained in a sense by the master. And basically he's saying, that's you and me. What God is seeking to do in us is to so get our hearts trained by His Holy Spirit and so restrained so that when we provoke someone or we feel provoked, instead of lashing out, instead of retaliating, the Holy Spirit goes, but Kevin, uh uh-uh. And over and over again, we learn to be meek in relationship to one another. And when you're humble and you recognize at the foot of the cross... You have offended God, and he's been patient and and meek with you, and you recognize this meekness, 
and this humility, if you do that over time, it creates in you patience. Is what Paul goes on to say. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, so that when, when someone you know, breaks down the fence and, and, and causes you pain, you don't just get rid of them or you don't retaliate, but you actually go to that person and you work things out so that you can be in right relationship with them. Because Paul says, make every all out effort to be unified through the bond of peace by the Holy Spirit. Unity is that important. I just want to close with some what I call practical considerations. What does this mean for you and for me? You may be sitting here thinking, you know, as I've been hearing this, I really do want unity. I want to actually make peace. I want to be reconciled with a person, but I don't even know how to go about it, or I've done it before and it just hasn't worked. I'm, I'm kind of, I feel convicted, but what do I do? Well, there's good news. One of the things that we've been, we have had in the church, but we're going to seek to develop and, and I think hope to create within the DNA of this church is this ministry called Peacemakers. And one of the things about Peacemakers is it, it shows you how to, to resolve and to be in right relationship with people and to do it in a way that is godly and biblical and basically helpful. Because all of us learn the world's way, right? We all learn from our family of origin, and sometimes what we learn in our family of origin is probably not the best. So I just want to share with you, if you're in a place and you're saying, you know, I have someone that I'm out of relationship with, it could be someone at work, it could be someone at school, it could be one among your friends, it could be someone here at the church, it could be with me. I want to encourage you um, to give a call to the church. Beth Moorhead has, there are people who are what are called conciliators who have been trained in this. We want to help train more people, but there's people trained. And if you want to have any help in that at all, we would love to sit down and help you through it and pray with you, sometimes get involved in helping that. I just want to let you know there is a ministry available to help you do that. The second thing I wanted to share, very practical. You may be thinking to yourself, are there times when unity isn't possible? Are there times when, you know, you've given an all-out effort and it isn't going to work? And my answer is yes and no. See, at the deepest level, at the core of where the superglue of bond of, of Jesus Christ is, there's unity there's a, and there's expression of love that we know that we stand before the cross and we know that we're in need of God. And yet sometimes, even with that, there are times when there is a separation, even though there's a unity, a foundational, but sometimes there's a separation that takes place. What I love when I read the Word of God is that the Word of God is so incredibly, practically, nitty-gritty true. You actually see this in the life of Paul, who gives this instruction. There was a time in Paul's life when due to the fact that there was trust that was broken in relationship with another person, and due to the fact that their vision and mission was changing, they actually separated. It says in chapter of Acts chapter 15, verse 19, that Paul and Barnabas, here is Paul, who Barnabas called years ago to come alongside. They did a bunch of missionary journeys together. And as they went on these journeys together, they became very tight and very close. And they would bring other people along with them. One time on one journey, a guy named John Mark didn't show up and, and did some things and betrayed Paul's trust to such a deep level that Paul didn't want him to come on the next journey. And as a result of that, Barnabas and Paul came into a place where it says in Scripture that they had such sharp disagreement that they actually parted company. And Luke goes on, the writer of this says, there are times when people sail in different directions, even though they are united by the bond of peace and love. There are times when there is a, there is a, a difference of vision and mission and values, 
in the way that things are at work, that people go, you know, I love you. And before Jesus and at the cross, we stand in love towards one another. We respect and honor. And yet, because of where we're heading, we may need to go in different directions. And then there's times when, when relationships become so battered and so hurt that in this situation, Paul was not in a position to be able to bring John Mark along. The trust had been so broken that he needed to, for a period of time, be away. And it says that they went there in different directions. But if you continue to read in the Word of God, at a point later on, they joined up together and they experienced a sense of oneness. Because time heals some of those kind of mistrust scars. You may be in a place like that, where you may be feeling separated from someone, you went in different directions, and, and, and you know what? Give it time. Because there is a bond that's deeper than what you can create. And God is still at work. And the last thing I want to share with you is this. Unity to the Spirit is a choice. It's not just some kind of thing that, you know, the Spirit of God comes on us and us and everybody's in unity. It is a choice. It's usually small little choices, one after another, of giving that kind of effort to stay in right relationship, to bear with one another, to be meek, to stay in humility. Often when I do these messages, I'll write to the elders or um, I'll send to some people who are praying for me. Here's what I'm working on, and I'm just asking God to help me understand this or pray for this. And this last week I sent something out, and one of the elders sent this back to me. And it, it was just simple. This. It was just simply this. Unity of God's Spirit is connected with a conscious choice to maintain a bond of peace. It's a choice. What's most important to me? Winning? Getting my way, proving my point, or choosing to be humble, gentle, patient, and bearing with another person in love. I really believe that God wants to do some incredibly great things through your life. He wants to set his spirit free so that you grow up into him in every place you go. You are the kind of person that infuses that environment with the humble, gentle patience of Jesus.